recorded this episode a few weeks ago, but before we get into it, we wanted to take some time to acknowledge and talk about what took place at the United States Capitol on Wednesday, January 6, 2021, because it was too significant of an event not to discuss here on our podcast and with all of you. Um, to sum up briefly what happened, a large group of pro-Trump supporters, and I think we can absolutely call the majority of them white supremacists, uh, stormed the United States Capitol when the certification of the Electoral College vote was happening. And this was, um, I, I think what happened can really only be described as an attempted coup and a disturbing act of domestic terrorism. And I should say that the other significant piece of this to note is that Trump spoke at a rally earlier in the day and really stoked the folks in attendance with his we will never concede rhetoric. And shortly thereafter this, uh, this terrorist attack stood pla- took place. Um, I, I think I'm not alone in this thinking, but I'm not surprised at what happened, given all that Trump and his staff and political supporters and certain politicians and and others, you know, really all that Trump and company have done these past four years to embolden white supremacy in this country. Um, But despite not being surprised, per se, um, it was still scary and sad and, and infuriating for me, and I know for a lot of you, too, um, for, for lots of reasons, but there are a couple, and Aaron and I have talked about this, there are a couple that have lingered with me. Um, the first is that in, in sort of real time and in the days since, there have been lots of comparisons made uh, to how the Capitol Police and law enforcement treated those domestic terrorists at the Capitol, as opposed to how protesters of color at Black Lives Matter protests, for example, have been treated. Um, and the, the second is just the demonstration of the power and boldness of white supremacy and white power and how truly vile it can be and and is and was um, at the Capitol. You know, the fact that we watched the sheer pride in those terrorists as they made their way through the Capitol and posted on social media. And of course, we're able to just simply go home safely afterwards was just and is just so infuriating and disgusting to me. Um, and so, Aaron, what are your what are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't. Um, I mean, there's so much in what we saw happen. Um, you know, there's a whole uh, piece I think um, that I read recently about one particular image of um, one of these um, people uh, who were was carrying the Confederate battle flag through mm-hmm. um, one of the halls of Congress um, and all of the symbolism behind that. Um, yep. Right. Uh, and the, the use of that flag uh, inside of the halls of Congress and what that flag stood for, um, but also the artwork that was behind that mm-hmm. man who was carrying the flag mm-hmm. and um who who the people are who are looking down on him from that artwork right metaphorically speaking right um one of whom was uh an abolitionist who was maimed by somebody uh in congress while he was serving in congress mm-hmm. um and then another who was pro slavery um 
sort of in the same little corner of the capital um and just all that that may all that that means and how much it it carries um how much that image sort of carries in terms of the history that we have in this country yeah you know i think we all feel this uh, but i'm i'm going to say it uh here there there needs to be and has to be accountability for what took place at the capitol and certainly in the days since, there have been some arrests, um, which is which is great. But I think we also need uh, grander accountability for all the folks who've played a role in encouraging and inciting and calling for these white supremacist actions to take place at the Capitol, but over the course of, of really our lifetime. Um, I, I stumbled upon this um, Draymond Green video. Um, it was a post-game interview that he did. Uh, he's an NBA player for the Golden State Warriors. And in it, he talks about, and he gets angry, as, as I am now, as I'm sitting here talking, my, my fists are clenched. Um, he talks about the, the, the fact that the decision was made that no charges would be filed on the police officers involved in the shooting of Jacob Blake, the 29-year-old black man who was shot seven times in the back in Kenosha, Wash, uh, uh, Wisconsin, excuse me. Um, that that literally happened just a day before mm-hmm. this incident, the U.S. Capitol took place, and for those events to be juxtaposed together, and I and I, and there's so many other examples of this, but for those events to be juxtaposed, and if you got little ones in the car or wherever you're watching this, uh, I'm going to curse here, so I'm just giving you a heads up. You know, in it he says it felt like a huge fuck you to every black person in America, and I and that. I, I had to retweet it. I, that, that was like, that speaks to me. And I think it's so true. Mm-hmm. Um, so to watch that happen and to be disappointed by that decision and then to sit in awe and watch um, for hours on end what happened at the Capitol uh, the very next day. Um, yeah, I'm angry. Yeah, I think that's a, um, a valid response. Um, yeah, I, I saw a... Yeah, I saw a tweet. Uh, I wish I had written down who wrote it, but it was a a historian of right wing coups and um, right wing authoritarians uh, who said that if there is not real consequences for those actions from both the people there, but also the people who egged them on, yeah, um, it's just going to get worse. Um, and I also sit and think about. You know, this was planned in the open on social media yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. And um, these folks are talking about what they're doing next and their next steps. And so mm-hmm. it's still being planned. Yep. Um, more more is being planned, uh, right? Even as we are trying to wrap our minds around what accountability could even look like. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot here. Um you can see that we intercut uh, and jumped in in front of this episode where we talk about healing movements, um, and we're going to get you back to that. But we we couldn't we we couldn't not talk about this um, before we jump into our episode because we do record these a little bit in advance of the uh, the release date. So uh, this happened well after we recorded this particular episode. But uh, for now, we uh, will return to our regularly scheduled podcast. Uh, Thanks again so much for tuning in. 
Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien. And I'm Aaron. Uh, Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we're going to bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings uh, through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And so with that in mind, what are you bringing to the table today, Aaron? I'm bringing an article called We Need to Build a Movement that Heals Our Nation's Traumas that was written by Kazu Haga and published on Waging Nonviolence. Um, And I'm actually really excited to talk about this because I think it starts to address a path toward healing and liberation, um, or at least open one up for me, like personally, as Mm. I think about what that can look like. Um, And it's because it's so easy to get lost in the enormity of that conversation and feel like it's so much bigger than you and and it's hard to find a place to start. Uh, And I think this article gives us a place to start to do that work. Absolutely. Um, And I also appreciate this piece because I recently read uh, his book, Healing Resistance, which he mentions uh, in the article. Um, And that's all about his practice of nonviolence and what he's learned from the Kingian nonviolence principles um, as he's founded his own sort of own organization to uh, teach people about Kingian nonviolence and uh, all kinds of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So but what was something that stood out to you about the article? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this article, too, and I'm really glad that we're discussing it. I think uh, everyone should take some time to read it because, in my opinion, it really highlights sort of what, I've, what I'm calling the humanity of trauma, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. we've all got trauma to some degree, and for some folks, the trauma that they've experienced is deep and dark and heavy, right? And so mm-hmm. when you couple that with everyday stress and anxiety and mental health challenges— Uh, or even current events that are happening in our world every day um, and in our backyards uh, and around the world, it can really be a lot. And so uh, I'm I'm glad this article is on the table. Um, You know, I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me and I appreciated in this piece is how Kazu shared pieces of his own story with us. Um, Not not actual specifics of what the trauma was, but aspects of his pain and his trauma and uh, the effects that has had on his life, right? He talks, you know, really honestly about how he's had panic attacks. Um, He talks about the power and weight of trauma in his everyday life and in his relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I just think that that's something so many of us can relate to um, and should be thinking about as we navigate our spaces and and navigate our relationships and and just sort of navigate the world. Yeah, I agree. It really uh, was powerful for him to share Um, at the beginning of the article, a personal story about his own realization of how he uh, was carrying his trauma despite telling himself, you know, (laughs) and and others um, that he was over it. Um, Not only as a way, you know, this wasn't only just a way for us to connect um, to this work, but it's also a remarkable parallel to the story of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Um, All of the history of genocides and enslavement and exploitation throughout the years um, that we've just basically said, get over it without any kind of healing. We just, you know, uh, pass a law and say, well, this is now illegal and 
and that's it. And we move on right. um, instead of trying to find a way to heal that trauma and, and address it in some way. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I know we're going to talk about this later on, but I was really struck by how he tied the notion of the work we need to do as individuals to heal mm-hmm. our personal mm-hmm. traumas and pain um, to the ways in which that is similar work that we need to do as a country. Yeah. Um, you know, we're I think we're definitely starting to see more of this happening, but it's definitely difficult work, right? Yeah. Um, and I think we're seeing more of it. Um, and we aren't. Yeah. Um, right. Like, I think there are lots of people um, who are still showing up in in spaces of resistance to mm-hmm. uh, any kind of acknowledgement of these histories. Um, you know, I think if you look at history curriculum across yeah. the country, like what are all the things that we're not learning about? Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's a big part of it. But I also think that a lot more people are stepping up to do this kind of organizing work and try to center healing within that organizing work. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, so I think about the way that like the movement for black lives, for example, uh, encouraged a lot of decentralized actions all across the country and, and globe, mm-hmm. honestly, um, during Juneteenth yeah. this past summer. Uh, and our own experiences of going down uh, into D.C. to go to a march and That's seeing right. Black Lives Matter Plaza down in D.C. and how much catharsis there was there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were all these protest signs that people had brought with them that had mm-hmm. turned into kind of like public art. Um, and also people made art specifically for those spaces and there were vendors and there were, um, you know, people selling food. And it was just like it was community. Yeah. Um, sort of living in and acknowledging the the catharsis and the pain and the trauma of um, sort of anti-blackness in this yeah. country um, and around the world. Um, and so it just was a sort of just remarkable experience just to be there, yeah. um, let alone march through the streets and demand, uh, you know, justice for um, for police killings and, and other injustices across the country against black folks. Yeah, I'm... I'm so glad that we were able to get down to DC and, and do that and participate in March. Uh, you talked about community and I think it was it was beautiful to be a part of that community. And mm-hmm. you talked about the artwork. I mean, all the artwork was beautiful and, and really moving uh, for, for sort of obvious reasons, right? Um, and so I know going down, there was something that we really both wanted to do. And so, like I said, it was just moving to be be there and be a part of the movement. So we should also definitely talk about the five actions that Kazu outlines at the end of the article to build a movement uh, where we are moving in the direction of healing our nation's traumas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for for everyone, so we're all on the same page here, our, those five actions were uh, sort of first and foremost, we need to do our own personal work as it relates to trauma, grief, and rage. Uh, second, we need to practice what Kazu refers to as emotional regulations. Um, the third action is working to see beyond the binary. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth is we need to do our best to reimagine direct action and not lose our creativity in those efforts. Um, and last but certainly not least, uh, we have to maintain an unwavering commitment to healing. Um, and so those are the five actions that he outlined at the end of the article um, and sort of expanded upon them. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, what were your sort of reactions and what sort of stood out to you there? Yeah, I think this is such a profound list. Um, I think you could spend a lot of time doing all these things. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I think understanding our own trauma is so critical to being able to heal from from the traumas. Yeah. Um, 
you know, for example, this is just one small piece, but I think folks with privilege uh, across all kinds of identities carry unseen trauma mm. um, that they have never processed because they've never had to. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and I'm thinking about the trauma that you have of like sort of being f- positioned into this privileged place um, and the sort of lack of humanity that you get from having to um, or or you know, being acclimated into a place where you are um, sort of developing a superiority complex. Yeah. And what that means is that, again, existing in the binary, which I'm going to talk about <laughs> in a second, is that the, the um, right, like the, the people who are oppressed in that situation, you have a sort of inferiority perception about them. Yeah. Um, and that's traumatizing and dehumanizing in a way. And I think that, you know, that's a hard thing to wrap your mind around um, as a privileged person. And if, but if you don't process that, it's hard to get to any place of um, sort of like effective movement work and healing and, yeah. and, and building coalitions and real relationships with um, folks. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my thought about trauma, but there's so much, um, there's so much here. Um, what was something that you noticed? Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with all of that. Like, you know, I think the idea that folks with privilege, uh, carry unseen and unprocessed traumas, uh, is real. Right. And so, and I know we've both done this work, but I've done some, you know, DEI work with students throughout my career, right. Especially in, uh, some of my past jobs. And, um, a lot of that was sort of workshop based work. Right. And, uh, that either I facilitated or, you know, I was able to bring someone else in to facilitate. And uh, that requires, that sort of work to, to really be effective requires a lot of vulnerability, yes. which, you know, that takes time to develop and to work with students on and, uh, and, and to get there, right? And, and it over, it comes with, you know, there has to be a lot of trust there, right? And so, yes. um, and, I, and I loved to see it when it was real and it worked out, right? And so, uh, but it was often, it would often be with my students uh, with, marginalized identities, you know, they would be the ones who would share deeply mm-hmm. uh, personal stories and traumas that they had um, and and some of which they had processed and some that they hadn't. Um, and it was certainly incredible to see how eye-opening that was for my students with more privileged identities, yep. uh, especially when uh, especially when some of those experiences shared were about experiences within the group, right? And maybe some of my white students uh, contributed to some of that trauma, uh, right? So things in some of those settings got really real. Yeah. Um, but it was also this beautiful thing for me to see uh, when that pushed sort of the white students uh, and students with privilege to open out about their traumas as well, right? Like it it sort of created this space where it's like, okay, well, if my peer is going to share, right, and maybe they're there and I, I, see, I see visible emotion, right, and, and I'm hearing things that I've never heard before and I feel sort of safe in the space to do so, um, it, it was always, again, really wonderful for me to see, you know, my more privileged students open up in those spaces as well. So I, yep. I definitely completely agree with that. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one of the things to think about, too, there is when you do have that experience uh, from sitting in a, in a you know place of privilege um, is you recognize the potential trauma you've caused in somebody else mm-hmm. and you recognizing you recognize um, not only that, like, you know, I harmed someone else. Um, but what is that harm? What is that harming someone else done to me too? Yeah. Right. Like we're, we're all sort of, we're connected beings. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and you know, when we hurt one another, that's generally going to hurt us too, in some way. Um, yes. and I think, you know, when you, you start to be able to process that, you can understand that a little bit more fully. And so I, like, I think that's one of the really important pieces that I drew out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, as I mentioned, I also really appreciated, um, him trying to imagine a world beyond the binary. Absolutely. Um, because that's so ingrained in us too. Um, that good versus evil mentality is kind of an offshoot of that. Um, right. Like sort of, uh, even in, in the way that we've sort of developed language to be able to talk about privilege and oppression, mm-hmm. right? Like a binary exists there too, when it's generally not really a binary, right? right? Like you think about um, the different identities people carry and the different pri- privileges you can have, right? Like even if you think about our conversation from last week, yep. the different identities that we each hold, um, there's privilege and oppression present in in us, yes. yeah, right? Like in, in yep. both of us. And so that's um, something else that I think is 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 a piece of this binary. Um, but it's, it's so hard to see the nuance and nuance and things because how the binary kind of thinking is ingrained in us. Um, so it's really easy to get stuck when things get complicated. Um, so I appreciate him like sort of saying we need to push beyond that because that is also going to create some healing as well. Absolutely. That, I mean, it's also, that's also real. Right. And I really Mm -hmm. appreciated that about, uh, in the article and Kazi talking about it because I think it's just so relevant also to the world that we live in right now in terms of our politics, uh, in terms of our work, um, in terms of how we treat one another, and, uh, sort of as you mentioned too, right? And so that for me was really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what are some ways you think that this applies um, to our own lives kind of like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, you know, I've been trying to think a lot about that. Um, I think there's a lot of applicability here for for us and 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 for folks listening with us and doing this work with us, right? I I think one of the things that I sort of took away from this in thinking about application work is I would really start by encouraging folks, especially Black people, Indigenous folks, people of color, anyone with marginalized identities, to sort of start to recognize and reckon with the trauma that we have lived through and that we have, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's so important and that's what Kazu talks about in this piece, right? Like, and especially right now with the pandemic that's happening and still happening and, you know, hopefully one day we'll be through this uh, with social unrest, craziness in our political system. You know, we, we just are coming off this election and, and that really showed us how divided we still are as a country. Um, you know, I think this is important to me because I feel feel this deeply, right? And I love mm-hmm. that Kazu talked about this in the article. You know, I've had to, and you know this, right? I've had to pause many times this year uh, because this year and the things that have happened this year have been heavy. Yeah. Um, it's been a lot, right? And so yeah. for me, therapy has been important. Uh, mm-hmm. Being able to talk with family and and my closest friends has been important. Um, also, you know, we're educators, right? So being able to process things with my students yeah. uh, and my colleagues who I work with on a daily basis has been important. Um, and so I, I definitely say that that's one way to apply this to sort of our own lives in ways in which I've already done. And, and I think, you know, I need to do more of, um, for sure. So what about you? Yeah, I think, um, I, I think that's a really important, uh, thing to make. And I also really appreciated the way that he, 
um, talks about how his own personal trauma is mm-hmm. tied up also in sort of our collective trauma in yes. the U.S. Um, and how deeply embedded that trauma is in the fabric of the U.S. Um, and how we've never done any collective work around healing mm-hmm. um, or reconciling any of it. Um, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but, we, you know, we hide that history, too. We don't teach it in the classroom. We don't teach it right. in the curriculum. If you know anything about those things, like you don't. Um, it's, it's not cause you, it's most likely not cause you <laughs> learned it in like a public education classroom. Right. Um, you know, and that's no disrespect to our teachers, nope. uh, in public education, right? It's the, uh, school boards and the politicians who are hiding this curriculum from us. Um, so we become so ignorant of what that trauma even means that yeah. it's, it, it becomes really easy to accept that it's in the past and we're over it. Yep. Right. In the same way that he talks about that in the beginning of this art article that like, Oh, that was so long ago. I'm <laughs> over it. And you know, you think about it and you're like, well, in the t- context of our country, like it's not that long ago. <laughs> right. Right. Like um, there are people who are alive today whose, you know, parents were uh, enslaved. Like yeah. that's not, that's not that far removed right. from us. So, um, Right. So, yeah. Well, and, you know, it's also applies to us as individuals too. this mm-hmm. idea that the trauma that you may have experienced as a kid, you know, I'm 35, right? The trauma that I may have experienced as a kid is still very much so real and with me. Right. And so, yeah. you know, we talk about the, you talk about the, the trauma, uh, not being that long ago in terms of our country's history, but, you know, we also have to deal with that trauma for ourselves because, you know, uh, it wasn't that long ago in our lifespans. Yeah. Um, so I definitely agree with that. You know, I um, I want to go back to sort of this idea of um, the what I called earlier the humanity of trauma, right? Like mm-hmm. the the fact that we as individuals have pain and trauma uh, that we absolutely need to work on, uh, and that was part of it. But I also think you know, Kazu also expanded that as we sort of talked about here and. Um, Right. Uh, and talked about the idea that we have to do this work as a nation. Right. Like and and I, you just mentioned this, but I think we really have to uh, do the collective work to reconcile uh, this trauma as a nation. Right. And I and so I think until we can properly engage with that trauma as a nation, um, until we can healthily and properly dialogue about this nation's history, it's really going to be difficult for for us to heal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um yeah. I'm, so one of the other areas I think about um, is, is where we apply this is in some of the work that you and I do yeah. in education um, that is usually focused on understanding our identities and the interpersonal pieces of oppression rather than thinking about things in a sort of systemic um, kind of lens. Um, so, I, you know, I think there's an argument to be made there that that's the more shallow work is, Mm. um, that, that kind of stuff. Not that it's not important. It is, um, to understand who we are and how we interact interpersonally. Um, but understanding why we interact in that way interpersonally, I think is also, um, important, but, you know, beyond that too, I, I wonder what it looks like for us to understand and center that historical trauma more, um, in those spaces as educators, mm. um, both as a way of shifting how we do this work to be more trauma informed, but also how we can try um, to, you know, do some healing in those educational spaces, too, when that's appropriate. Um, I think that's difficult. That's it's that's big. Um, but I think we need to start to figure out, like, wh- you know, what are the ways that we can start to do that, too? Um, 
because we can't wait around forever for <laughs> like uh, leaders, quote unquote, yeah. you know, uh, politicians um, to to start these conversations. I think we have to figure out how we can create them on a small scale um, as well. That's incredibly powerful. I agree. I think there's certainly lots of good work and thinking to do there uh, as it relates to sort of our work in higher education for sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, so those are some of the things I think we are going to keep thinking about and, and try to implement in our daily lives. Um, and so speaking of continuing the work, uh, you know, every week we are going to introduce some homework for us to do. Right. And so I think our homework for this week, uh, personally is to think about how the action steps that Kazu laid out in the article for us, um, how we can apply those more, right? And, and, and how they sort of apply to our life. And so just to reiterate, though, those were sort of one, you know, really trying to do our own work personally, right, around trauma and grief and rage, uh, wanting to practice emotional regulation. Um, we definitely need to see beyond the binary, uh, wanting to reimagine what direct action looks like. And uh, I mean, the, the last one I think is sort of the most powerful, this idea of having a commitment to, to healing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, we've been talking for a little bit now, um, but we've really just scratched the surface on what these things can do to, to touch our daily lives and yeah. work toward collective liberation. Um, and there's so much more in there that I kind of referenced earlier. Um, but they're sort of each their own practice to develop, right? Yeah. Those five things you listed, um, or that he listed and wrote about. Um, so, you know, for me, one of the things that I'm trying to think about is a little bit more of a reimagination of my own relationship to direct action um, and making more space for myself to be more involved there. Right. Like we talked about being uh, present and marching on Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, but, what, you know, what, what are other ways that I can be engaged? And I know there are so many avenues and paths for me to do that. I just need to, like, you know, make space for that um, it, more effectively uh, in my life. Um but we're also excited to hear more from like sort of our listeners. Like what, what are, what are things like, what are your reflections from this? Um, how do you think Kazu's ideas apply to you? Um, so please uh, share that with us on social media, wherever you might find us and wherever you social media yourself. <laughs> please do. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think that's it for our conversation on this particular article um, today. in in this particular podcast episode, um, there's, I think, a lot more to discuss on this, as we talked about. Um, but uh, Damien, I think next it's your turn to bring something to the table. Uh, so what do you have for us? It is my turn. I'm really excited. I think uh, next week we're going to talk about the 1619 Project, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of there's a podcast element of it. But there also was sort of this magazine issue that was in The New York Times um, and so I'm excited for us to talk about that. We'll also probably discuss some parts of the backlash to that project as well. For those of you familiar, I know you're, you, you're aware of what I'm talking about there. So I definitely can't wait for, for next week's discussion. Absolutely. And, you know, I think this ties in so nicely to some of the stuff we've talked about today with the, the hiding curriculum that we don't yeah. know about. Yep. Um, and I think this, the 1619 project really, um, unveiled a lot of this hidden history, um, that uh, people don't want to don't want to deal with yet, yep. which is I think why there's been so much backlash uh, yes. to it. Um, 
but yeah, so thank you all so much for joining us today. Um, you know what to do, but in case you forgot, make sure you subscribe, leave a, leave a review and a rating, uh, share our podcast, and uh, follow us on social media. That's right. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. 